broadcasting from the UNMC College of Nursing. Get ready for RN Huddle, the podcast dedicated to bringing hot topics for and by nurses to the table. Hello and welcome to today's episode of RN Huddle. This is your host, Heidi Keeler, coming to you from the College of Nursing, UNMC, Omaha, Nebraska. And today's episode is going to continue our conversation talking about a very important subject, and that is sexual assault. And in our first episode in this series, we talked a little bit more about SANE nursing and SANE being sexual assault nurse examiner and talked through a case in detail so as to be able to learn from the experience of three of our local experts. And today we're going to continue that conversation in recognition of Sexual Assault Awareness Month. We're going to continue the conversation with our three local experts, our SANE certified nurses, Claire Boeha, Debbie Fatelli, and Jen Tran, all certified SANE nurses and expert in sexual assault. And hopefully through continuing this conversation and walking through a couple of more cases, you can really learn the inner workings and details and skills needed to make sure that if this happens in your practice, you'll be able to guide a patient through this experience. So ladies. The next scenario that we have is a 25-year-old male patient who presents to the ER following a sexual assault occurring five hours ago. He states that he met his male partner using a social dating app. They went out for drinks at a local bar where he only had about one and a half alcohol beverages. He stated he doesn't remember much afterwards. He also stated his memory is fuzzy, but he remembers kissing him. He awoke in the assailant's apartments without clothes on and anal pain. He is still wearing the clothes from the assault. Well, whenever I see social dating app, my heart kind of skips a beat because it's scary. And I always say that, you know, when we meet someone in public, we have our like gut instinct, like this person is good, not giving me stranger danger. Right. And so when we meet someone online, you get to know them and their virtual personality and who they are in a virtual way. So when you meet them in person, that stranger danger isn't quite as heightened as it would be if you had just met that person. And so if I were to give anyone advice is if you are going to date on a social media app to make sure you know that person in public well before you know them in an intimate setting. And then when you do know them in an intimate setting or you're ready to take it to that level, just make sure the expectations are laid out because we've seen over and over again where, yes, I was okay with penile vaginal penetration, but I wasn't okay with penile anal or whatever that might look like. It just goes a little bit too far. Right. I wasn't okay with you taking off my clothes. Yes, exactly. So those uh, social dating apps make me a little bit nervous, but it's where we are. Right. Yeah. So just, we just got to do it. Yeah. Carefully. And so in the setting or in this setting with this patient, we would collect the entire kit. Would you guys agree? Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there. I don't believe there's anything that I would miss out of this entire kit. All steps one through twelve, and then what kind of report would you guys choose for him? What what options are there out there? Since he is an adult, since he is fully cooperating with us, and because he does not have any life threatening or serious medical injuries, I think he has a lot of choices. We have the full report where um, 
Everything that we do with him that night is um, accessible and given to law enforcement. He can be contacted that night. There is the anonymous report where he can do whatever he feels comfortable with us in the room, whatever kit collection, whatever historical account he wants to provide. We can do that with him. And then he can wait up to 20 years for that to be actually dug into by a detective and to be reached out and have his name yeah. associated yeah. with all that information. And yeah, his name's anonymous that entire time. Yeah. And now there is an in-between step that's a partial report. And Jen, if you want to dig into that a little bit, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So the downside with anonymous is that that kit can't be run because there's no name attached to it. And so the middle ground is the partial report where we're going to give them your name, the law enforcement, your name. We're going to give them your contact information. They're going to take your kit. They're not going to talk to you. When you're ready, you can talk to them. You can start that communication or they'll probably contact you once that kit's been run to talk about the results and how you want to proceed. But I think what's great about our community is that law enforcement's really gotten behind giving the victim choices and tailoring their investigation to what the victim wants. And so I think that that's great. And that kind of leads us into the whole FETI, Forensic Experiential Trauma Interview. Russell Strand was an investigator in the military, and then he started doing debriefings, and he found the way you ask victims questions after debriefing, he got much more information. So why not use that kind of line of questioning after a victim who's been sexually assaulted or any other crime, truly? You want to talk about what that looks looks like? Yeah, so... Even in that situation or with those line of questionings, you can ask simple questions like, help me understand your thoughts when such and such happened. What Do you remember what happened when something happened? What was the most difficult part when this experience happened? Or is there the biggest question I always ask at the end of the whole entire interview was, is there something that you can't forget? That is That opens up a whole entire world of information that the patient is just stuck on but maybe hasn't really thought too much about because it's subconsciously stuck within them. And that also goes back to being that empathetic listener and talking with your patients and listening to them and making sure that they feel safe with you. Yep. I love Rebecca Campbell. She's done a lot of research on interviewing, specifically with law enforcement and interviewing victims. But I love when she talks about how when you and I remember a story, we have post-it notes. Some are big, small, lined, and they're in order. So when we tell a story, we can pull those post-it notes in our brain and tell a story from beginning to end. She says after trauma, you just have those little post-it notes and there's little bits of information on each of them and they're scattered in your brain. So when you're trying to remember what happened, it's little pieces. It might not be from beginning to end. It might be completely scattered. And then you interrupt the victim, right? And they overlook that small post-it note. And it might be gone for a little while. So we can't expect our victims, just because of where they're at in trauma, to be able to tell a story from beginning to end. We have to just let them, like Fetty says, tell me what you remember, and then let them talk. Don't interrupt. And then go back and say, tell me more about you said they had sex with you. Because that might mean different things to different people. So tell me more about that. But yeah, like you said, sometimes I'll ask my patient, sometimes we have these like out-of-body experiences where you just got to let your body, you know you're not going to get out of it. And let them, you focus on something in the room. And sometimes the patient's like, oh my gosh, yes, I remember this. I'm like, yes, this. Go get the purple polka dot sheets. Yeah. Yeah. Not only is this a good way to get information for the patient, to record that for them, but it's also a good way to help a patient process this traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. You 
you might be talking to them at the beginning of their processing experience and there there's a lot of jumble there and in the act of putting it out there to share it with you that might help them kind of put things in order so that they have a little bit of a clearer outline after they walk away from you that can help patients i think in pretty major ways and i've also found by doing this type of interviewing style is that sometimes your patients aren't focused on what had just happened to them. And sometimes you just need to get whatever is going on in their mind done with or focused elsewhere. For example, I had a patient who was pregnant and she was so focused on her baby and so f- and could not look past anything past that baby, couldn't focus on. She didn't care what it had the assault, she didn't care about what just happened to her. She was so focused on her baby. And I was like, okay, we will come back to the interview and let me just get an ultrasound machine in here and we'll look at her, look at your baby and make sure everything's okay. And we can't proceed with the interview until we do this because you know what? I, I'm that empathetic ear and I am hearing what you're saying because I want, I know that this is important for you. And I want to make sure that this is what's going to happen first, that you are okay first. And then we'll move on to the next important thing. If someone is afraid for their children who are still at home, call the police and ask to do a well check on that patient's children if that seems like a safe idea for the patient. Do something else to put that patient at ease so that you can actually provide for their immediate needs. Because ultimately in medicine, that's what comes first, is the patient's immediate needs. Back to this case scenario that we have here for our 25-year-old male patient. Other essential elements to this case is drug-facilitated sexual assault. How often do we see that, guys, and how often do we test for that in our practice? I think alcohol, as we have talked about previously, is the biggest drug-facilitated sexual assault tool that is used. People get drunk. It's hard to put a number on it. Yeah. I think, you know, things that we look for if the history doesn't match the presentation. So if I only had two beers, I know I'm not going to be passed out drunk. And so if that patient is, or if they have flashes of memory, okay, that doesn't make sense here, especially flashes of memory. We That's pretty common presentation and drug facilitated. So we collect two gray top tubes in urine. There's some gray in there, but usually blood within 24 hours and urine within 72, both within those 24. But that's not with the kit. I think there's a lot of misinformation that that's going to be run at the hospital and you're going to have these results back right away. And that's not the case. Right. I constantly have people are like, so what, what are the results of my t- kit going to say? What are the results of my drug analysis here? And I have to break that news of, hey, this I don't get those results. Those go to the state. Those go to the crime lab. I, I don't get those results. And so this is a waiting game after this piece. And it's, it's heartbreaking to say that to patients. But that's just the reality of it is that I'm here to collect that evidence. I'm not here, again, to say, yes, you've been raped. Yes, this is what happened. But I believe you. I believe everything that you're telling me. But I'm just here to collect evidence for you. Yep. And once that leaves our hand, that becomes part of the investigation. And that's not our role. Yeah. Another essential part of this is the camera. Getting any type of pictures that it related to injuries. And then another piece that we do is the aftercare. I think one of the big pushes that is in the literature right now is to have a good aftercare program for sexual assault victims. And I think right now we've had a tremendous program for ourselves with sexual assault and aftercare. Right now we have been referring our patients to a clinic that they can attend for post-assault follow-up. 
It's a free visit for them. They get paired with the same nurse. They're able to meet with the WCA advocate at that time. They can get their lab work repeated, um, especially for the, the HIV medication. We can re-examine their injuries too. We can retake photographs. And then that way we can meet those goals of following up within 72 hours. Yeah. And repeat STD testing. We yes. know we can't prevent all the STDs like genital herpes, genital warts, syphilis. And so we want to get them back to make sure that, yes, we've treated you for chlamydia and trichomonas and make sure that they don't have anything else we need to be concerned about. Right. And some of those STDs don't present until much later. Right. Too. These meetings can also be really important for um, emotional and psychological healing. Having someone else check in on you to say, how are you doing today? What resources can I provide to you? Are you feeling suicidal? Are you feeling depressed? What other resources do you need so you can continue your healing process? Right. How is your sleeping? Are yeah. you still enjoying activities you always did? Are you tending to stay home? But yeah, assessing how they're coping yeah. is really important. I think that's now the big push for good standard of care for programs now. So in these last two scenarios, both of the assailants were known. Why does this seem to be important in any of our documentation? It seems like we always want to know who's the assailant, or people always want to ask who's the assailant. Can you guys speak to why that is? So our care is medical, yeah. first and foremost, and um, 100% through. So we need to know who the assailant is for their safety so that we know that we're not sending them home to a perpetrator. And then also it affects how we treat them. So if it's a known partner, maybe HIV prophylaxis isn't appropriate. If it's a stranger, let's talk a little bit more about that. So it does affect not only their safety, but also our medical care and planning. I think that's very valid. I, I never want to further, I never want to make a patient more vulnerable after they leave my care than they were before. Um, so ensuring that we have adequate safety measures in place so they, they get the legal counseling they need should they need some kind of restraining order before they leave the hospital. Things like that to ensure that we are not re-victimizing the patient by providing them with the safety while they are in the hospital. So our next case scenario is a suspect examination. So we were called to the ER to conduct a suspect exam. And law enforcement has a man in custody and they have a subpoena for the assailant to complete a suspect exam for an assault that occurred less than 24 hours ago. So suspect exams are kind of... A suspect exam is when usually the person is in custody and they're brought in and the law enforcement officer has a subpoena. There is no verbal here. It has to be a written subpoena. And they're asking us to collect something that would help in their investigation. So in our role, though, we're medical. We're going to take care of this patient as though they were any other patient that comes into the hospital. They'll have the same offerings that anyone else would. But in this particular case, on the subpoena, it's going to say what we're supposed to collect. So that might be an STD. We're going to collect a sample because they're going to test for an STD that maybe the victim has already presented with. Or it could be an entire sexual assault kit. Right. The biggest thing with that is that we stay objective. We do everything as it's by the subpoena or by the patient, whether it's collecting that health history, whether it's collecting um, photographs for 
injuries, whether it's doing samples or collecting evidence or toxicology or whatever it may be that is specific for the patient or for the subpoena. In addition to that, we still have to offer them the same patient care that we would for any victim. That means offering STD medications, HIV prophylaxis. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've talked about a bunch of different cases today and a ton of information, but the biggest thing we want to stress is providing that empathetic ear for victims and providing the support that they need. The biggest tool for that in our community is contacting the WCA or Heartland Family Services. The WCA's number is 402-345-7273, and Heartland Family Services number is 402-292-5888. Check the episode note for the website. We're going to conclude our discussion now on sexual assault in recognition of Sexual Assault Awareness Month. I really hope that by walking through this information and and going through these cases with our experts that you've been able to pick up some best practice, some clinical tips, and really a general sense of what to do when you come across patients in your settings that may have undergone such trauma and are in need. And I, I really hope that you're better able to connect them with the resources that are going to help them immediately and also in helping them keep safe in the long term. And I also hope that maybe you've picked up a little sense of advocacy for this issue. It is a very ominous one, and I hope that maybe you are more aware of things that you can do in your professional domain that can help keep people safe. I can't thank you enough for listening to today's episode. Thank you so much, and be sure to tune in next time on RN Huddle. Thank you for listening to RN Huddle. To stay connected, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at UNMC CNE or check out unmc.edu slash CNE for more program information.